Backup is not archive, and archive is not backup. Frequent listeners to the show know that we say this all the time. This episode, we're going to dig a little bit deeper, and we're going to talk about exactly why that is the case. It really comes down mainly to e-discovery and why backup systems make a really bad tool when you get an e-discovery request. If you live in a place where you are likely to get an e-discovery request or if you're required to keep certain information for compliance reasons, you need to listen to this episode. And interestingly enough, it ends up with kind of a surprise ending, one that came to me actually only after actually editing the episode. If this is your first time listening, hi, I'm W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I've dedicated my 30-year career to backup and recovery, disaster recovery, and anything near to that. And this podcast is dedicated to those unappreciated backup admins. We turn you into cyber recovery heroes. This is the Backup Wrap-Up. Welcome to the Backup Wrap-Up. I'm your host, W. Curtis Prescott, and I have with me someone who apparently has much better ability to remember to do things than I do, Prasanna Maliani. How's it going, Prasanna? I'm good, Curtis. What did I remember that I that you seem to, to turn, forget? To turn on OBS. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, you know, in keeping with you know, my philosophy, we do two recordings here, uh, partly because we use a cloud, well, chiefly, I think, because we use a cloud recording service that has been 98% reliable. <laughs> and then sometimes it just doesn't have the recording, <laughs> which, is, which is incredibly frustrating. So we make a backup recording and we use something called OBS, which... If it's just you and me, we probably could just use OBS. Yeah. But uh, you know, we we have guests, and installing OBS isn't that helpful. Or so anyway. But you remember today, yes. and so we have our <laughs> yeah. And then I know we're um, going to get to the news in a second, the topics. But I think one yeah. of the things we should also mention is uh, not only do we keep the recording of OBS locally, but we also upload it to a Google Drive. We do. Yep. We do. And one thing, though, that people Three, may not realize. Two, one, buddy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think one thing, though, people don't realize is I know you create a shared folder for us and throw things in. And over the weekend, I got into a little bit of a hissy fit because I was like, why are you consuming my storage, Curtis? Yeah, I don't understand that at all. That's where that's, I share a drive with you. And but you don't share a drive. You share a shared folder which is okay. different than in enterprises where you create a shared drive that has different association right. than creating a shared folder. So you mean when you put it in there, it's still in your account, but it's sharing it with me. Yeah. Oh, that's, Oh, it's basically an organization okay. mechanism. Okay. All right. Well, Hey, you know, you learned something. Yep. Hey. Uh, speaking of Google drive though, um, I think we have good news. I, I think this is good news. This is a follow-up on the big Google Drive story that I that I believe we reported on last week. And this was this thing where uh, a bunch of Google users, there were like several hundred that had clicked the this has also happened to me button and where basically all of the data since May had, had disappeared. And... The, the good news is that Google released a, a basically instructions in a blog post that talked about what to do. And it turned out that the data was never really gone. It was just data it, that, that, so first off, this, uh, and you were right the first time you said it, <laughs> when we talked about it last time, said that this only affected those with Google Drive. And I said, well, there are some people saying that they have the problem and they weren't using the desktop yep. version of Google Drive. And you may recall I said they may be wrong, <laughs> and it looks like they were. So um, basically, you needed to download the updated version of Google Drive and then click Restore from Backup, which is interesting because 
it, it means that there are files that are not quite in the drive, but are stored, still stored locally. These are files that were not yet synced. And that basically this should solve your problem um, because it only affected files that, that had not yet been synced. To which I want to say, um, how do you not know that your drive has not been syncing since May? Yeah. Um, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. That's just a thought. Well, that, and, but, it's kind of well, crazy. So, it's been like seven well, months. And no one's yeah. noticed the problem. Like no one, like if you're using Google Drive for desktop, you've never gone to the web interface and been like, hey, let me check if my file is there. Try to pull it down or use the Google mobile app. You know, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I think it's, th this really kind of drills to the heart of why I'm not that big of a fan of Google Drive as, or, or any similar drive, like uh, Office One drive. 65 yeah. OneDrive, um, is that the syncing process is not managed and reported on the way that a backup process typically works. So a sync failure apparently isn't bubbled up. Because <laughs> you would think if they're using Google Drive desktop version, Google Drive would be flashing messages to them saying, hey, you know, you haven't synced for seven months. You might want to look into that. Um, yeah, whereas a, a backup app is something that allows for centralized monitoring, and you know, the, especially when we talk about um, companies. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. That, 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 that isn't what I wanted to talk about today. I do want to say, though, kudos to Google, though, for actually providing an update on both what the issue was, quickly resolving it, and providing a patch. Yeah, they did figure it out. They did fix it. And it looks like um, my <laughs> my favorite part of the instructions were if you click the restore, you're going to either get uh, two messages, either restore was successful or you're out of space. If you get the second one, um, you should really go get some <laughs> more space. <laughs> and just They did like it in a nice little professional way. And I really wanted them to go. Hey, dude, man, clear out your drive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Curtis. Uh, anyway, anyway. So you want to yeah, yeah, yeah. talk about the 23andMe yeah, story? Yeah, so I came across this article recently. So it looks like 23andMe had a security breach recently. Right. And it was kind of alarming what was what the media was talking about. They were like, oh, 23andMe was breached. All this information is available on something like, I think it was like, what was it? 6.9 million, I think was the number right. of users. And it's like, wow. And they didn't have any other information, right? So it's like 23andMe for those not familiar. It's kind Sounds of very scary. Yeah. It's like an ancestry website where you can upload your DNA profile and it'll help connect with other people who may be related to you that you may not know about. And so with right. that DNA profile, it's like, wow, if hackers got into 23andMe, they're able to pull down your DNA and what could they do with that? Like all this data could be used for nefarious purposes and other things like that. They could produce a persona clone. <laughs> Maybe in 10 years. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it, so it was very scary. And just yesterday or uh, yeah, yesterday they just published an update from 23andMe saying, Hey, we figured out what the issue was. And once again, like the Google, I'm glad they were very transparent. So yeah, so what ended up happening was uh, hackers basically use credential stuffing to access 14,000 accounts. And what credential stuffing is, is they basically figured out that there was another website that was compromised. They downloaded those username and passwords and they use those compromised credentials and just started uh, using those same logins on 23andMe. Right. And like we always talk about Curtis People should be using different passwords on different websites, and they should definitely yes. be using a password yes. manager, right? If, if if everybody did what we tell them to do, which is don't use the same password anywhere and use MFA, right, Th this hack would never have happened. Yeah. If, if these 14,000 – and, I, and I, 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 I'm not – I don't know. It, it sounds like victim blaming. It, it is what it is. This is your job as a person, as a company – to to prevent the you know the stealing of your information and if you just do all the things that you're not supposed to do you know your chances of getting hacked are much much yeah. higher 
An interesting update to this story since we actually recorded this news item, and that is that 23andMe basically came out and said what we just said, which is, you know, if you hadn't reused your passwords, uh, you know, from other sites on our site, you wouldn't have gotten hacked. And they got lambasted for it. Basically, they said, you know, 23andMe is blaming their users for their hack. It wasn't a hack, right? It wasn't a hack of 23andMe. It was they went and got other people's credentials from, you know, their users' credentials from other sites, and they tried those credentials on 23andMe, and they logged in. I, you know, I, I'm, I have to say, um, you know, I'm pretty much on 23andMe's side here. Do not reuse your credentials on other sites. Number one. Number two, turn on MFA, right? If, if, you, if you had done both or either of those things, uh, you would not have been subject to this hack. I, you know, I, I don't know what else to say. Now, so it's not as bad, right? So it's 14,000 people. They didn't go to the backend systems and pull in all the data. They went through the front door, right? And so right. they saw whatever that user could have seen. Now, the downside is it wasn't just those 14,000 people and their information, right? Because with 23andMe, you could say, hey, who else am I connected to? And you could look at their... Right. DNA relatives is what they call it. And you can also build a family tree, which also exposes the personal data of people you're connected to, potentially. Right. Yeah, it, it is an optional feature, but it's probably an optional feature that people use quite a bit. And, you know, it shows, you know, it shows a lot about you, right? You're, you know, you know, obviously things like when you last logged in and it shows the people that you're related to, which may expose family relationships that you had not intended to expose publicly. Uh, the scariest part was it, it said it talks about DNA segments. It, it shows you the DNA segments that you have in common. I, I haven't looked at that specifically, so I don't know exactly what that means. But I, I think it's important to say that what it doesn't, what you're not able to do as a 23andMe customer is to download your actual DNA profile, right? The thing that, that I was joking about earlier, you know, cloning, <laughs> you know, you're not able to do that. And so, while this sounds like a huge breach, the only thing I think that 23andMe could have done to prevent this is to force MFA on all customers. And, you know, it's something that you as a company, I think, should think about. Um, With sensitive data, that, especially. <laughs> you know, especially if you have sensitive data, yeah. right? And I, I can't think of any data more sensitive than yeah. the DNA profile, right? Um, that's about, I mean, what the customers could have done is you use a different password and and turn on, I'm sure 23andMe has MFA enabled or available to you, but many people might not use it. Apparently 14,000 people, yeah. at least 14,000 yeah. people don't use it. I, so... <clears throat> I also do wonder if companies should start integrating with things like, what is it? Am I owned? Right. Yeah. Right? Those. Am I pond? Am I pond? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's those websites that I think companies should start thinking about integrating with and being like, hey, there's already a list of breaches out there. So has this username, password, the hash of the password been used elsewhere? So they could figure. Oh, that's actually. I really like that idea, Persona, of basically proactively going through your username um, and password database yeah. using the MI Pond uh, database to say here is. But you won't get. I guess the only thing you'll be able to notify, you'll be able to notify a person that this username, this email address has been owned in another site yep. and notifying. I was, I was thinking for a minute there that you could figure out if the actual password. Well, I wonder if you could use hashes. Used. But I well, you but could use that, but they don't put they the don't password yeah, in the, the MI pond, yeah. right? They just say that, um, you know, Maybe that's a service that they should offer. Who? Am I pawn? Yeah. For companies to integrate. Be like, hey, we have... Because they must have the hashes, you know? Because they're getting the data from somewhere. Right. 
right? Yeah. There's a, there's a, I think there's, there's some money to be made yes. there, I think. <laughs> that, right. Um, the, yeah. The one other thing I would say is, and they didn't go into a lot of detail. So the breach happened back in October. So it's not known yeah. how long it took before they saw the issue and how also the attackers were forcing themselves in. For instance, if the attackers, and I'm sure attackers don't do this, right? But if they start coming from a region that you normally don't log in from, that should have been flagged immediately. You know, so their intrusion detection system should have realized, hey, you're logging in from the east coast of the US. You normally log in from the west coast. Yeah, we should probably check it. Yeah. But I I agree. I I mean, I agree, but I'm just thinking about like, I don't know any, like the the only website or service that I log into like that where it says, hey, you're in a different spot is Netflix. And the only reason that that's the case is well, because I'm not supposed to watch outside of my home. Yeah. They're not they're not thinking security. But, but uh, there are other websites, though, like that look and see, okay, are you logging in? Like Google, for instance, right? Hey, you're logging in from this remote place. Are you sure that's you? And they from send a you. a different place. Yeah. And they send you a email, right? Or Apple does it, too. If, if, if you've enabled MFA. No, no, no. But it doesn't even have to be MFA, right? At least a notification. Well, I think at least getting a notification that says, hey, okay. you've logged okay. in that, from a new yeah, browser. Yeah, that's true. That's something that they could yeah. do, right? They could notify users. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, just so you know, someone's logging in from Russia yeah. with your... Um, or from a new browser. Of course. That, right? They also Yeah, do from that. a new browser. Because you can fake VPNs, yeah. right? You can use VPNs to fake. Yeah. 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 So I think there yeah. are things that so could have, I, I, and I don't know what systems they have in place yeah. at 23andMe, but hopefully they are reconsidering what systems they have to prevent things like this from happening. Yeah, agreed. I, I guess just short version here is this wasn't as bad as we thought it was initially. This wasn't an attack. This wasn't a back end attack. It is officially a breach because it was, you know, their company. This was basically a bunch of people who could have prevented the breach by just changing, you know, using different passwords and enabling MFA. Um, It sounds like they could have done some additional things to to, uh, ameliorate this uh, as a company. And we also, we don't yet know if they, um, um, if the, like the hack, you said that this this happened in October. Did they sit on it for two months or did they just not know for two months? That's also the one thing is they did bring in forensic investigators to figure out what's going on. So I will also give them props. So maybe, maybe it took, yeah, maybe it took that long. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the news of the week. All right. This week I thought we would dive uh, a little bit deeper into archive. If you want the basics of the difference between backup and archive, there are a couple of episodes from a little bit a little bit ago. Um, it just says, "What is archive and retrieve?" as opposed to "What is backup and restore." We'll put that but, in the show notes, right? Um, in case you want to go back and listen to that. Yeah, we'll put a link. Yeah, thanks. We'll put a link in the show notes to that uh, episode uh, if if you want to go listen to that before you want to listen to this. We're going to go a little bit deeper into what is archive because it is very different. What um, do do you remember how I how I um, sort of separate the two? What was it? It was I believe one of the points you talk about is backup is restoring your what your environment looks like to a point in time that plausibly right. existed. Right. right. Archive is you get a whole bunch of data back and the way you search yeah. is very different. Right. Usually yeah, exactly. backup it's I want to go back to a point in time. Archive is I'm looking for all the emails from Curtis or those types of things where you're what you end up with from an archive perspective is never a plausible point in time or it may never be a plausible point in time in the life right, of that data. Right. Absolutely. Is that right, fairly accurate? I, that, that's absolutely it, right? So it's basically a, a, a backup is to do a restore and an archive is to do a retrieve. And the difference between a restore and a retrieve is that a restore is basically restoring your system back to a particular point in time, even if it's just one file. You're restoring one file. If you're just doing one file, technically, I suppose same. you could use either, but yeah. generally we're talking about many files. 
And so with a restore, you're restoring the system to the way it looked, generally speaking, just a few minutes ago or perhaps yesterday, basically to the most recent backup um, and, and possibly to something before that, especially in the case of a ransomware attack. You want to pick a particular point in time because it's before the ransomware attack happened. But the whole point is to bring it back to a point in time that's a point in time that you know. Whereas with archive, it's about, I need some information that matches a particular set of criteria that, um, and I don't even know where that information might be, right? That's, that's another big difference between a backup and an archive is that with a backup, we know we're restoring system A, you know, Apollo, we're restoring it to the way it looked yesterday. With an archive, we are, you know, you gave an example, we're looking for Curtis's emails, um, or we're looking for any documents that Curtis created in this span of time. Yeah. It could be emails, it could be written documents, it could be drawings, it could be whatever, right? A, a perfect example of this is, let's say I work for a firm where my job is to design stuff, design widgets. And what goes into designing those widgets as I work there, I'm going to create drawings. I'm going to create, uh, do we still call them CAD drawings? I don't know I if think, we even, do we I still, yeah, still, we still call them CAD drawings? What's that? I think it's still accurate. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I'm going to create drawings of what I'm doing. I'm going to create conceptual drawings, perhaps uh, actual physical drawings. I'm going to have emails where I go back and forth. Persona, what do you think of this? And you're like, yes, I like it. I'm going to have documents where I describe the requirements for the widget that I'm making. Can you think of anything else that I might Like have? meeting recordings? Meeting recordings, absolutely. Meeting notes where we discuss yep. uh, what I'm up to. Now, why would all of that matter? Because it's, let's say, a couple years down the road and I've left the company and I've gone to a competitor and suddenly the competitor comes out with an identical widget. And uh, my former employer is now accusing me of stealing intellectual property. And what so what they want is they want proof that I worked on that widget at this company and so um, they're going to, they want all these things. They want all the emails. They want all the documents. They want all the CAD drawings. They want all the meeting notes. They want all of these things. And they, they all have, and the widget, you know, the widget has a name, right? We, that's one of the reasons we have project names, right? Uh, the widget has a name. And so we just want every email where I mention that project name. I want every drawing with this named after, et cetera, et cetera. Or just maybe if we if we want to cast a wide net, we just want any CAD drawings that Curtis did from this time to this time. Can you think of anything else? One other key aspect is that project may not exist on any production storage system anywhere else, right? The only copy may exist in this archive system. And you don't even know what system it initially existed on. Maybe that system has been retired. Right right? You don't know, you don't care. What you're really focused on is finding everything associated with this project, or like you mentioned, any CAD drawing that Curtis did between this time frame. Yeah, exactly. Because this may be happening a few months, a few years, many years later, you don't have any knowledge of the servers or the applications. You don't remember if you were using Google Drive or Perhaps maybe there was an outage in Google Drive and you switched over to Microsoft 365 or the vice versa. And you, you don't remember those things. And that's why you have an archive and you can go in and just ask for information. Show me uh, drawings that, um, you know, show me the CAD drawing, show me the emails, show me the... Um, uh, any documents that Curtis was working on that have these phrases in them. Um, because that is, uh, um, the, the, the thing that you touched on is a really important part is that you don't know where the stuff is. The other thing is it's not a point in time. It is a range of time, 
right? It's going from basically anything Curtis worked on in 2023. And um, because, again, we've accused him of stealing an, an electric property, we want to show that he created it here. So we want to just see everything. Uh, and then you have a team once you do that. I think the other key, though, with the archive is, especially depending on the system, it doesn't matter if you, Curtis, had created a like a working document and then deleted it, right? It doesn't matter any of that because as long as the archive captured that copy, it's still there, regardless of what you do in the time, if you delete it or whatever else. The archive holds that copy, so it's there. Right, right. So you have all this documents, right, from 2023, everything. Now you need some ability to go through, right? And usually you will have your legal team or someone else go through and sort of filter and really figure out, okay, what is relevant, what is not? Because there might be thousands of documents that Curtis created in 2023 And so now you need that ability to figure out, okay, which are the ones that are relevant for this IP case versus which are the ones that are not? Because you don't, you want to find the needles in the haystack, right? Not give everything over to, for discovery purposes, right? For legal discovery purposes. So we've talked primarily about e-discovery as one of the reasons we archive. And that is probably... The primary reason I think many companies archive. They may actually have a regulatory requirement to archive, to basically be able to show any version, any, um, you know, any conversation. I know that like, for example, uh, financial trading firms have to show any conversations with customers. So they archive every conversation with a customer, whether it's audio or text or, you know, anything like they have to archive that so that they can then search it later when you, uh, when the customer said that you promised them a certain financial return, and you're like, uh, never did that, <laughs> right? And then it's like, uh, yeah, actually, you totally did that. Yeah. <laughs> that that's why they are. So that's, that's, I think that probably is the primary reason many people archive. But if we look at the other reason to do archive is storage management. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So before we talk mm-hmm. about why you would archive to get storage management, I think it's important, like you mentioned, to talk about the cost. So production data, right, sitting on tier one storage is very expensive. And as data ages, typically the value of that data starts to reduce. So a project that you worked on three years ago, you're probably not going to go back and touch it, think about it, right? But at the same time, you might have need to access it maybe at some point in time, or like the example Curtis, you gave, right? It's a widget that you created, no longer really needed. You don't need to keep all that data around. So you'll keep like the final version of the widget, but you don't need all the working copies and working examples that you created along the way. And so you want to save all that space. So what you could do is there are different solutions. Most people would go about and say, okay, let's archive this project and move it to cheaper, lower cost storage that doesn't need that high performance at the same time, allowing me to search and find it because that is critical for these use cases. So what people do is they would want to archive old data sets, things that they don't actively need. And so you move it off to a archive system that allows you to store at a much lower cost than the tier one production storage. And typically they give you this additional functionality like being able to do the searches that we had talked about before. Now, one of the challenges with sort of archive systems, right? And moving the data is you have to be able to identify the data before you can move it. And for some organizations, that's very difficult to do. And so you will see a lot of times where people are like, okay, I'm just going to keep things on my primary tier one storage. But within that system, they have other tiers of storage. Like I can move it off to uh, a serial uh, ATA disk, or I can move it to object storage. And the storage array itself will automatically deal, deal with all that tiering for me. So I don't need to worry about it. It's still all seamless. But it is important to note that that's not archive. You don't get all the capabilities to be able to find your data. You don't have that protection necessarily to make sure a user doesn't go manually delete the data. You don't have that ability to search all copies of all the data. Right, It's really more like a backup system that tries to emulate archive, which we've talked about before, is not an archive system. <laughs> yeah, I would describe, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you can, you can do, 
basically one of the things that people do is they maintain the same structure of what they have in the primary side. They just move it into a less expensive place. They move it from S3 to Glacier Deep Archive, right? And you can you can maintain the same structure. And, and you're right, that's long-term retention that isn't archive. The idea behind archive is, again, <clears throat> just like archive isn't backup, long-term retention isn't archive either. And there are backup systems that just move old data, old backups out to long, you know, to less expensive storage. And if you actually need those backups, then it, it brings it back. Again, that's more kind of an HSM style thing than it is archive. That would be hierarchical storage management for those of you that <laughs> that haven't used that term before. Um, <clears throat> but a true archive is going to allow you to bring it back in a different way, right? Yeah. So we talked about earlier, so this is sort of the most basic type of archive is we, we do that search, we identify all of these files, all of the CAD drawings, all of the emails, all of the documents, all of the phone calls, all of the, you know, what all of the information having to do with the, widget. Um, you know, the Booyah widget. <laughs> and then we archive that into a, uh, essentially a digital box. That's the way I like to call it. And <clears throat> we put all of it together so that when it's, five years down the road and somebody says, you know, this reminds me a lot. This is one of the things we call, you know, institutional knowledge, right? This reminds me a lot of that thing Curtis was working on back in 2023. Remember that? What was it called the Booyah project, right? And then you go to the archive system and you search on Booyah and poof, there are all the emails, all the, you know, all the yep. um, whatever, all of this stuff having to do with this. I, one of the things I like to liken this to, have you ever watched a case, a, an episode of the show Cold Case? You ever watch that? Mm -mm. Okay. So, That's probably the one show, like <laughs> detective show that I've never seen or crime show. Yeah. So in Cold Case, every episode of Cold Case involves this warehouse where they have these boxes, you know, those like yeah, yeah. the kind of the file folder boxes. boxes. Yep. Yeah. The file folder boxes. Right. And, um, and basically it's like, you know, Steve got murdered and there's a Steve <laughs> murdered Steve box. Right. And it'll say like, it'll have like date and time. And basically they put all of the stuff, all of the evidence, all of the notes, all of the stuff. And they put that into a box and they put it on the cold case shelf. And then somebody's pulling that out. And again, they get all of the stuff. This is a digital version of that. So that when you remember and you say, um, uh, you know, we want, we want to go back to that project. And I have a perfect example of this. I used to work for a, or I did some consulting work for a satellite company. <clears throat> and that satellite company, once they, they used to make a lot of satellites for China and then some time passed, some significant amount of time passed, like several years. Mm. And then uh, China came back and said, you remember that stuff that you made for us back in 1998? You remember those satellites? We want 20 more of them. We, we don't want any improvements. We just want like the we same want ones. exactly the ones. Those worked out really well. We want to, you know, we want a bunch of them and you know, we want 20 more. And they had an archive system. They were able to pull up all those drawings and then poof, and then just produce uh, uh, essentially carbon copies of what they made. That's sort of the old school archive. And you, you need to be able to attach metadata to it, a project name, <clears throat> other or, things, so that when you're searching for it, you're able to find it. Yeah. Or another example is animation studios, right? Typically, when you make a sequel, you're going back and pulling up old frames and old animations to reuse again. And so being able to quickly find those, right, and pull them back up saves your animators so much time rather than them trying to recreate it. Yeah, absolutely. And the other, uh, I know that w with, you know, we, we have some insight into that. We've had somebody on here uh, who, who's, who's worked there, Jeff Rockland. And you know, we know that they do both sort of cloud versions. They also do like hard copy versions. They use optical media <clears throat> because they know they don't want to lose it, right? So, so they, have, they have multiple copies so then they get back there. 
so that is one purpose of uh, archive. But I, I'd say the more, do you agree with me that the more common reason is the e-discovery? I think so. Reason? I think so. Yeah. I yeah. think just going to storage management, I think a lot of people see storage management or storage costs as cheap enough not to hinder their users from moving the data and then the, them going, having to go and try to figure that all out that I think right. it's not as big of a motivation motivator as it is from right. a compliance and e-discovery yeah. case. Yeah. Being told, you know, you need to do that yeah. <clears throat> from a compliance standpoint. And so, and you touched on this a little bit earlier in that you were saying that if people like create something and delete something, it would still be in the archive. And and I think that's an important distinction because we need to talk about the way this works. A Basically a real time archive system is the yeah. only way that's going to happen. Yeah. <clears throat> because if you're just running batch archives, let's say just in the same way where we run batch backups at the end of the night, if you're just running batch archives, you wouldn't get those intermediate uh, versions yep. uh, or, or files that, um, you know, emails, like you, you might send an email and then you realize, oh, I said something. And go delete it. Yeah. Email, and then you go delete the email. But if you have an actual email archiving system, it's watching and it's going to archive every single email that goes out and every single email that comes in. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of? them. Go ahead. What? This reminds me of our CDP discussions, because this is literally what you want, is you want CDP for an archive use yep. case. Yeah, exactly. You are essentially doing, uh, that's a continuous data protection for those that missed that episode. And it is, you You definitely want um, sort of, you know, it's it's real time. It can, be, it, it can be asynchronous, right? But it's real time replication of every single Whatever it is that you're archiving, you do file system archiving, you would need to do file system archiving. You would need some sort of plugin to the file system to be notified of any file changes, which I would assume would be available from most filers. Yeah. Like it would be something that you would plug into a virus yeah. detection program, right? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be every single change. It's only when those changes have been committed, right? So when you close a file. Right. right. <clears throat> right. Um, and so the idea is that you would, uh, you, you're storing that every single thing that goes out, both good and bad. Yep. And, um, and so, and when you have a, this is sort of, I would call this like a real archive system, right? So like it's, if it's for e-discovery, you need to be able to go in there and there are, I don't know. 30, 40 different pieces of metadata attached to any particular item, object, whatever you want to call it, right? Obviously, there, these include things like the author, the if there's a, a document name or a subject name to an email, if, there's, uh, if it's an email, who it was sent from, who it was sent to, the date it was sent, uh, the content of the email itself or the yep. document itself, um what what else what maybe think of other i was thinking like if it's a document that was shared like who else it was shared with who had access that's when they great. had access exactly. who left comments exactly. who made updates right all of that stuff would be shared or stored in a real time you know in yep. a real time archive system so that you can say i want to see all the documents that curtis created and i want to see everybody that saw those documents right so yep. so you can search by, you know, document owner, document creator, uh, email owner and creator. And um, let's say you have an employee who has uh, accused a company of a hostile work environment. And they say, uh, I got all these emails from all kinds of people yeah. saying all kinds of things. Okay, well, <laughs> show me all the emails that were sent to this person over the time that they worked here. Yep. And then we're gonna, and then we'll do culling again, right? We'll go in and we'll do we'll do one big search to pull and just get a giant pile of emails, all of the emails that were sent to this person. And then we go in and we search for phrases and yep. words uh, that should not be in a business email. Um, 
and, and so that's why it's that's why it's a two step phrase, yeah. or a, a two step process. Not you don't want to do ten e discovery mm-hmm. pulls against the the email. Um, so why don't we? Um, why don't we do this with a backup system? Because backup serves a different purpose, right? It's intended to restore data, not retrieve data. And there are some systems that try to do this and mix the two. Probably the one that comes to my mind the most would be Commvault, right? They have the common technology engine between backup and archive. Um, I don't, and and I'm not saying this at like, I'm not saying that they don't do it. I just, I haven't spoken to anyone who does both. Theoretically, it could be done with a single system and they do claim to do it with a single system. I just don't know anybody that does that. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear from anybody that is using either Commvault or <clears throat> anything else that is doing both backup and archive with a single system. Again, it's, it's, it's theoretically possible, but generally speaking, backup systems don't store the data in a way that um, the, you, you can't search against it like that. Yeah. The, the first thing a backup system is wanting, okay, what system are you restoring? <laughs> uh, I don't know, yeah. right? I'm just looking for emails. Oh, so you want to restore the email server. What's the email server's name? Yep. Uh, I don't know. It was five years ago. I don't know, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, you know, part of the way we were on, we were on uh, Google uh, email, and then we switched over to Microsoft 365, yeah. and then we were, you know... Um, a good email system would have all of the email from all of those, regardless of which hosting provider you yeah. were using. The other thing also <laughs> is that for a lot of these use cases, it's also that full text search index, right? To be able to find not many backup products can do the full text search across all your different data sets and data types, Right. There are yeah. e-discovery I, products that allow you to search what people said in a video, right? And show that as, hey, who was Curtis talking to in this meeting that got recorded and be able to pull up the phrases and look at the transcripts? Yeah, that is a, a really good point. There are some limited backup systems that are able to restore a file based on its full text right? You can search against the full text mm-hmm. of a file. But again, you're going to find one file, right? Yeah. Um, the And again, generally speaking, you start with the system you're restoring, and then you and then you uh, call, if you will, from there. Whereas this, this is casting, a, an archive system is catching a much, casting a much wider net. So one um, question I had for you, ahead. Curtis, is Typically, who operates the archive system versus who operates the backup system? Well, it's going to the answer to that question will be will depend on whether we did this for storage management purposes or for e-discovery purposes. If we're doing it for storage management purposes, uh, it can be just about anybody, yeah. right? That is qualified to operate it. But if we're doing it for e-discovery purposes or compliance purposes it's going to be someone that is specifically trained in compliance yeah. and to make sure that they have the right requirements to make sure that you have both the, uh, the initial creation of the archive and then the retention of the archive, because there may actually be laws and rules on how long you can re- uh, actually retain certain amounts of data and you may be told, uh, for whatever reason, a legal reason, there's certainly the legal hold reason to yep. you have to keep this data, but there may also be a legal reason why, where you're told to get rid of a certain set of data. I can think of things like GDPR. Most of the time in the case of GDPR, for example, and CCPA, if you have a business reason yep. to hold that data, you, you can, but there still may be a scenario where you're told that you need to, um, you know, get rid of a certain set of data, and this is all very specific um, compliance-related things that you and I and people that think mm-hmm. like you and I don't necessarily think about yeah. uh, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, I think that's important because that just goes back to why backup and archive systems may not come together is because they are different teams. 
Which yeah. Yeah, a backup person, you know, a storage management person, a, a typical system administrator can handle the, the, the a backup system. They quite possibly are not qualified to handle a full uh, archive system, especially if it's one that's done for compliance purposes. And I'll just I'll just end this with telling my favorite. Here's what can happen if you need an email archive and you don't have one. Uh, I worked for a consulting company. It was a big consulting company that had, I don't know, they had like a few hundred uh, consultants. And we were hired by um, a, actually I have two stories. (laughs) I I, I think I know which story you're going to go to, yeah. We were hired by a company that um, needed, that got got an e-discovery against their email. And what they had was a weekly full backup from, their uh, email in exchange. And we basically, what that meant was because they, they just had a weekly backup, they didn't have an archive. It ended up costing them well over a million dollars in consulting time because we needed like this team of like 15 people. It was like a three teams of five that were working 24 hours a day um, to, to be able to do these because what it meant was you restore exchange to this week, extract the stuff you want, then you wipe that and you restore it to next week. And it was yeah. just this very, very uh, difficult process. But the other one is this famous case. And I don't want to say the company because of what I don't want to get the company wrong, but it was a large financial trading firm. And the, what happened was it became infamous because <clears throat> they they didn't have an email archive system. They had backup system and, and it wasn't well maintained and they, they changed things over time. And so it took them forever to satisfy the, uh, the electronic discovery request to get the, the emails that, the, the, that the, the plaintiff in this case was looking for. And then at some point, you then tell the judge, we're done. We, 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 you know, we've satisfied the discovery request. And then a little bit later, they came back. They're like, oh, sorry, judge. Uh, we found this other <laughs> box of tapes. <laughs> right? And at that point, it had already gone on a really long time. And then they'd said they were done. And then they, it turned out they weren't done. The judge ended up issuing what's called an adverse inference instruction <clears throat> where where they said basically whatever what it is is it's an instruction from the judge that infers something mm-hmm. that is adverse to your case hence the term adverse inference instruction so they basically said whatever the plaintiff says is on the tapes it's on the tapes <laughs> because no one could possibly be this bad at retrieving their data and so they must be doing it on purpose. They're trying to hide something. And boom, they lost a, it was like $2 billion Oof. lawsuit as a result of simply not having an email archive system. Since recording this episode a month ago, I actually learned about an 11-year-old company that has built a nice business that, among other things, helps companies who used their backup systems as archive systems. You know, the thing I tell you not to do. So if you're trying to do e-discovery using your old backup tapes, they'll do it for you as a service, saving you time and money on the extraction and culling phases and reducing the amount of data that you have to give whatever e-discovery system that you're using. All of those charged by the gigabyte. So everything you can reduce there is, you know, goes in your favor. They also have a service to significantly reduce or remove your Iron Mountain bill while allowing you to search against any of those tapes at any time. They call it the Intelligent Tape Archive. Also, for those of you using Dell's Source One archive system that they are sundowning, they've got a service for that as well. They can directly extract, cull, and store that for you as well. They're a very impressive company that really understands the litigation and e-discovery worlds And they really surprised me with how easily they're able to extract data directly from backup tapes without needing the original software, even if you manage to encrypt your backup tapes. Their name is Sullivan Strickler, and I'll put a link in the show notes uh, in case you're interested. 
So if you have the need for it, if you have a compliance reason or you have other business reasons, we gave you some in the early, th- you know, this idea of do you, do you want to track who made what, yeah. you know, who made what when in case you, you know, want to be able to sue them later. <laughs> um, just realize a good archive is a double-edged sword in that if you were doing something wrong, yep. it is the smoking gun. And you, you know, uh, it will show everything that you were saying uh, to to whom and when, and you know all the stuff. So a good email archive is really only helpful if you are the type of company that that does the right thing. Yeah, but but if you've got somebody in your company that's doing the wrong thing, the email archive will prove that, and you'll lose your case. But honestly. Uh, maybe you should anyway. <laughs> but but here's the thing. If you are doing the right thing, a bad, like using your backup system as the archive system, it can actually do you much more damage than uh, you could have trouble proving that you were right, even if you were, even if you were right and your company did nothing wrong, uh, you could lose the lawsuit. Yeah. Any final thoughts? No, I think that's, yeah. Backup is not archive and archive is not backup. Yeah. And there are two different types of archives, right? There's sort of the storage management reason, and there's the real-time <clears throat> system that is for compliance reasons yeah. that makes sure that you get a, every copy of everything that you can search against it uh, for the purposes of e-discovery. And if you need that type, then uh, you'd better buy that type yeah. <laughs> because if you ever actually need it, you're really going to want that functionality. Yep. All right. Hopefully that's helped with your questions about archive. Thanks for joining. That is a wrap. The Backup Wrap-Up is written, recorded, and produced by me, W. Curtis Preston. If you need backup or DR consulting, content generation, or expert witness work, check out BackupCentral.com. You can also find links from my O'Reilly books on the same website. Remember, this is an independent podcast and any opinions that you hear are those of the speaker and not necessarily an employer. Thanks for listening.